Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. I work a lot with neglect, with developmental trauma and with neglect. Neglect is basically all about nothing, which means people don't have anything to remember because it's all about what didn't happen. So they have no story. They have nothing to tell you or they think they have nothing to tell you. So neurofeedback is perfect for them because they can learn regulation. In the process of learning regulation, they might actually come access more narrative and then we can integrate that but the neurofeedback gives them a foot up gives them some momentum when they don't think they have anything to say and that is so helpful because people i know the people coming into my office often they start out so demoralized they've tried everything they're sick of you know talking about the same stuff they're sick of being mad at their parents they're and so they would love to just sit and watch a video and that's what that's kind of what we do in neurofeedback you just sit look at a screen and you get better can you beat that no you can't beat it at all dr marie swingle hello say hi to ruth cone ruth cone thank you so much for uh joining us on the neuro noodle neurofeedback podcast thank you for inviting me pete now first things first you're a psychotherapist. What is a psychotherapist? We'll get into the other good stuff later, but that's a question that I, I have not asked yet on this show, and I think that would be a good question to answer to start out with. Let's see. It's a, it's a very good question. People know something's wrong. They don't know. Some of them do. Some of them don't know why they, they feel bad. They don't know what to do about it. Maybe the people in their lives are tired of hearing about it. They think there might be somebody who can help them feel better. So what do we do in psychotherapy? Well, originally it was the the quote talking cure. People came and they talked about their feelings and they talked about their history and they began to try and make sense out of it. Since then, we've added more modalities because we've realized that A lot of the trouble lives in the body. A lot of the trouble is not remembered and it's emotional. So the psychotherapist is both somebody who helps you make sense out of both your present and your past and also certainly the way I work. We're trying to almost recreate and repair, sometimes unwittingly, the relationships with caregivers because often that's where a lot of the trouble began. So we're almost reenacting the original relationships in the relationship between the client and the therapist. So there's a lot of repair work that goes on in terms of having somebody who pays attention to you, listens to you, cares about how you feel, wants to help you understand yourself and understand you know, why you're having difficulty. Many people have so much trouble with relationship. And that's what they need to talk about. They're lonely or they're frustrated or they're frustrated with people in their lives or they can't keep people in their lives. They're trying to figure that out. So 
often what we're trying to do <clears throat> is in the relationship with the client, help them understand what they do in relationship. The way I'll kind of pull back the neurofeedback piece is I've heard people say, and once again, I work most especially with childhood neglect. And that's a kind of a neglected part of the field that I'm very passionate about. A lot of these people, they don't know why they feel so bad. And having somebody validate that there's a reason why they feel bad is tremendously helpful to them. Even somebody that helps them see that they're there. And I've had people say to me, because they've really learn to live without relationship, that if it weren't for the neurofeedback, they wouldn't be able to tolerate the psychotherapy because they can't really stand to have somebody that close to them. But the neurofeedback is kind of a good intermediary because it's something that we're doing together in a way stands between us. So it's not such an immediate and maybe overwhelming experience to be like one-on-one -on -one with somebody. No, I, I think you opened up a, a really, really good topic in terms of blending psychotherapy with neurotherapy. Um, and I'm sure we have parallel experience that specifically when you're dealing with trauma, um, a lot of individuals either can't find voice or the voice is so painful that they're not ready to go there. They can't go there. And the beauty of neurotherapy and all forms of trauma is if you don't want to say anything, you don't have to. Um, I also work with uh, sexual trauma and with females, they've told their stories so many times. Um, and to tell it again is another assault. And they are beyond, beyond relief when you say you don't have to say a word. And sometime around the sixth session, uh, very frequently, uh, people feel quiet enough, calm enough that then they do want to share their story. And it's kind of a relief and a purging. They're not in the pain anymore. Ruth, would you agree that you have a parallel experience there? Absolutely. And I work a lot with trauma and with sexual trauma as well. And neglect trauma is all about nothing, meaning it's they I mean, the signature of neglect is they say, nothing happened to me. And that's the truth. Nothing happened. A lot of things that were supposed to happen didn't happen. So this whole world of nothing inside, they really think they have nothing to say. So the idea of coming in and having to talk to somebody, it's like, what am I going to say? I have nothing to talk about. And then as we go along and the neurofeedback starts to kind of directly address the arousal, then they start knowing more about what they originally thought was nothing and they, they find they have something to talk about. And it's very empowering as well as being a relief. They have a choice about it that they don't have to. So I'm totally in agreement. Ruth, I, if you don't mind, I'd love to continue um, having you speak more about, you know, what I call the void. We talk about nothing. Um, I mean, they're, they're, is no nothing. We're talking about the the presence and the absence of something, um, and how you learn to define uh, the absence. Can you can you speak a little bit more to that? Because I think that's central again in trauma and, and neurotherapy. Well, what I try and help people understand, without being too didactic, because of course we don't want to do that, is. I want to help them understand a little bit more about development. 
what I'm discovering more and more is most of the really profound neglect happens in infancy when the brain is developing. And so even if there was something to remember, they wouldn't yet have the equipment to remember it in a narrative way. So it lives in the body. It lives in the emotion. It lives in the soma. You know, it lives in the sensory. It lives in all these modalities that we can't access with talk therapy. But what I want to help them understand is what's supposed to happen so they can understand a little bit better, like, oh, well, maybe that didn't happen. And I say to them, and I'm very careful about my timing, but I say to them, the way a child develops a sense of self and a sense of value is in infancy. I look up into my mother's face and I see a loving and joyful reflection of me. And that's what's coming back at me from looking up. And when I look up into a face that's terrified, or I look up into a face that's angry, or I look up into a face that's blank, and we've seen the still face videos and how the child gets so distressed when there's no expression, or when, God forbid, we look up and there's no face, that child is sort of out there. And that's where the dysregulation begins. So I teach them the way a child learns regulation is by looking up, having this reflection come back, being sort of calmed and soothed by it, and getting a sense of, I can get upset, I can calm down because there's somebody there to help me and I have value, which and I know that because they're there and they stay there and I see it in their eyes. So this is all very much at this very primitive kind of brainstem level. And when that doesn't happen, then the, the brain is it's developing in an irregular, dysregulated way, way. And it's natural for a child because an infant is a bundle of needs. If there's nobody there and they get distressed, there's no one to help them calm down. So they get hyper aroused. They get stuck there. They feel at sea. The nervous system doesn't learn a rhythm of getting dysregulated, calming down, having somebody there to do that with me, little by little learning how to do it for myself. All those experiences are missing. So this nervous system is in chaos. So I begin to try and help them understand what is supposed to happen. Given the opportunity, I'll ask them, so what do you know about what was going on in your mother's life when she was pregnant with you? What do you know about what was going on in your mother's life or your parents when you were an infant? And they they generally know something because there's family lore and they've heard from older siblings or relatives. Well, my, my grandfather died when my mother was pregnant, so she was in grief. So then you start to imagine the environment in which this infant was sort of bathed when they were in utero and then what they were born into. So if they had a depressed mother, what kind of 
mirroring what kind of regulation they might have gotten or not gotten. And you begin to sort of help them construct very carefully because you don't want to make up a story. And I'm, I, I say this very carefully when I teach that we're making something out of nothing, but we want to be careful not to make it up. And some of us as old as me will remember in the early 90s as a yeah. backlash to awareness about sexual abuse and incest, there was this uproar called the false movement and people were going to court people were going to jail people were accused of making up these stories so we don't want to make up a story but they know a lot about their family history my parents were both holocaust survivors so my mother i was born in 1955 and my parents hadn't been in this country that long the war ended 1945. So it was pretty fresh. So I had these newly traumatized parents. So I know that. I may not remember, you know, what was going on when I was a baby, but I know the stories because I've heard them from relatives since I was a little kid. So little by little, you begin to put the pieces together. Student of Alan Shore. And I'm not yeah. suggesting people read his stuff because it's hard to read but basically he talks about the origin of the self is through this early resonance between right hemisphere and right hemisphere the mother's brain and the baby's brain and if the mother is terrified or the mother is depressed or the mother's absent or the mother is so dysregulated that there's no one to resonate to consistently or reliably that's what that brain is developing around so it's very begins to make sense to them there is what i call this triumvirate or the bermuda triangle of emotion and sidebar the neglect experience is replete with contradictions it's filled with ambiguities which is what makes it very hard to work with. And I'll say more about that. But basically, when I talk about the Bermuda Triangle, it is resentment, grief, and guilt. Because on one hand, they, they, as they begin to understand better about their history, they have a lot of anger and frustration about all the missing experiences but they also have a lot of grief about all that they've missed out on, all that they've suffered without understanding what was wrong, what was missing. And they also feel terribly guilty because many of them, like me, have these terribly traumatized or impoverished or overworked combat veteran or parents who have all these problems and trauma of their own. So they feel guilty about the anger and the resentment, but they feel the anger and the resentment. So they're trying to hold all this stuff, which is where the neurofeedback is such a wonderful help because they don't have to figure it out. They can work with the experience without having to go into it and they still get better. And as they get better and they become more able to speak and to feel and to access 
and to integrate the pieces, they begin to sort of put together a narrative, which is what we always want with trauma. And then they begin to feel empowered. They begin to trust the therapist a little bit more. They begin to, the core of neglect trauma is what I call the dilemma without solution. And this is the early, early experience of neglect, which is the source of comfort, longing, love, whatever it is that a, an infant needs, that person and the source of terror, distress, agony, abandonment, loss, all of that is in the same person. So I'm reaching towards, backing away, reaching towards, backing away, reaching towards, backing away. The child can't resolve the fact that it's all in one package, what I want and what I'm terrified by. And so they default to the freeze response, dissociation, to not feeling, and then as they get a little older, and this is what we're faced with, this is our biggest challenge in, in psychotherapy, and this is where back is such a brilliant sort of help, and that is this ferocious self-reliance, because they learn to disavow interpersonal need. It's not safe to need another person because I will be abandoned or left or hurt or terrorized. Something bad's going to happen. So they insulate themselves in this world of self-reliance. And we're up against that when we try and work with them because they want the help. But God forbid, if they let you help them, if they let themselves need you, it punctures their self-reliance, which has been their survival their whole life. So once again, they're in a terrible dilemma. And yeah. that, is, that is our dilemma with them. Zero feedback, and it eliminates part of that. We have like a third brain in the room to resonate to, and it's not nearly as threatening as another person in terms of need. And so it's a really good intermediary step to accepting, tolerating, and receiving and utilizing. I think we have a major, major issue. Many of us working with adults, if you didn't, you know, I don't know when you went to school, but I went to school a few years ago. Um, but you, you need to know your basic development. So Bowlby, Ainsworth, Shore, um, if you're going to be working with adults, and I think people only go to these sources when they're working with the munchkins. What I'd love to do, and I think Pete probably would like this as well, is to move over into the, you know, how we integrate a lot of the psychotherapy with the neurotherapy. And of course, I think our, the two big people that we know about who are um, in neurotherapy as well as the psychotherapy component, of course, Basil van der Kolk. And I think actually I have Sue's book behind me. Um, yeah, but, but also... Um, Sue's book. Um, how how does your work integrate with the, uh, I'd say the two leaders now in uh, developmental trauma and neurotherapy? Uh, are you on the same page with these individuals? Are you doing something different? Have you gone further innovating? Please do talk, talk more about the neurotherapy component. Bessel is my greatest teacher and I've been following Bessel around for about 40 years. I'm 68 and I first discovered Bessel when I was in graduate school, you know, way back in the day, we got the diagnosis in 1980. I started my um, psychotherapy work in 1980. 
88. So we were right in there on the ground floor. And you know how Mary had a little lamb and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That's where I was with Bessel. It's like, and in those days, there was nothing to read about trauma. Bessel had a book that is now out of print that (laughs) I have two copies of. One of them I got a hundred years ago when it first came out in 1994. It's called Psychological Trauma. And then somebody borrowed it for a really long time a few years ago. So I looked for another copy. I found it out of print on eBay for like $90. So now I have a second copy. But the great piece of writing that I think Bessel has ever done is in that book, chapter two. It's called The Attachment Cry. And what it's about is how how core to psychological trauma and everything that we know of as trauma, the original attachment to the caregiver is the core of trauma. Attachment is a survival need. And when that is threatened or withdrawn, that that organism is in danger. That is the most profound threat. So at the core of all trauma is that. And in those days, we had nothing about trauma. We had that book we and Judith Herman, Trauma and Recovery, which is also a classic that I don't know if people still read it, but it's so profound. And it was all we had then. And she also makes a really big point about how essential connection with others is in terms of healing. So Bessel was my greatest teacher starting right at the beginning and everything he said to do, I did. So first thing that came out in the early 80s was SSRIs, the the um, the Prozac drugs. And Bessel was the first person to start talking about the brain. In those days, nobody even talked about the fact that you know, Daniel Amen was a famous um, psychiatrist at that time. He was the only person who at that time said the same thing. He said, we're the only profession who doesn't even look at the organ we treat. Well, Bessel started talking about the brain, and then he started looking at the aberrations of memory that happen with trauma and how we can't think or speak when we're in a trauma state that the prefrontal goes offline. And we had to develop nonverbal ways of working. So that's EMDR. When we got EMDR in the early 90s, he said, learn EMDR. I did that. He said, learn somatic therapy. We had Peter Levine, Pat Ogden. I was all over the place running around getting training in somatic therapy. Then I learned from Bessel in one of the trauma conferences I was telling Pete about neurofeedback. And I saw Seaburn Fisher speak. This was in 2008, and that just sort of blew my mind. And so I signed up for the first training I could get. I live in San Francisco. In those days, you had to go to the East Coast of the U.S. for everything. So I went, the first possibility of neurofeedback that I could get was in Connecticut in 2009. So I signed up for, and while I was waiting, I um I got I searched all over in the Bay Area for a neurofeedback practitioner because I wanted to experience it, and I found this one very quirky woman in um, down the peninsula in what is now Silicon Valley. 
this lady named Lillian, and she was very quirky, and she didn't do psychotherapy. She did um, she did every kind of neurotherapy there was. She did neurofeedback fields. She did lens. She had every kind of equipment. She said, whenever I go to a conference, I have to sit on my hands so I don't buy. Every she had a closet full of paraphernalia equipment. So I tried everything with her, but she didn't do psychotherapy. She only did all these kind of um, modalities in a, in a vacuum. And, and when I took my training in Connecticut in 2009, by the grace of God, it was so powerful. Eburn was a guest speaker at our training. And I was so sort of awestruck and starstruck about Seaburn way back then that very shyly, very sort of sheepishly, I approached her because I was learning about mentoring. I approached Seaburn and I said, will you be my mentor? And she was very sort of ambivalent about whether she could work out the scheduling with me. We had a three hour time difference. And anyway, I kind of stayed patient and she worked it out with me. I, I had the good fortune to get on Seaburn's calendar in 2009. And I have greedily held on to that spot ever since. So I've been consulting with Seaburn. Well, this is 2023. I've been consulting with Seaburn almost 15 years. And I feel so fortunate and so blessed. And in, you know, in agreement with Seaburn, I will say that psychotherapy without neurofeedback is necessary and insufficient. Neurofeedback without psychotherapy is necessary and insufficient. One thing I learned the hard way is I won't see other people's psychotherapy clients for neurofeedback because it has to be all in one place, at least my way of working. Because working with attachment trauma and working with trauma, which is so much of what I do, the relationship between the clinician and the client is so much a part of the work and having it be integrated with we've got these three brains we've got the computer the client brain the therapist brain and we're doing this kind of rewiring of the brain and to have it to have it split it's Ruth, not, you want to start not, playing with a little bit of the, the detail of, of what you're doing in the neurotherapy i think that's probably what people would really love to hear sure um in the neurotherapy i work a lot with the hyper arousal with trauma, we, that's so much of what we see. Of course, with neglect, there is a fair amount of hypoarousal as well. But a lot of what I'm doing in the neurofeedback is working to lower arousal. So whatever works most directly and most comfortably for that person is what I do. And Seaburn developed a protocol which I have found to be really marvelous, which people who aren't in the eager world, the world of um, EEG, um, it used to be called EEG spectrum, but the equipment is called eager. And um, those of us in this world, there's a kind of community in the around eager and Seaburn's kind of at the center of it. She developed a protocol, which is FPO2, where we put the electrode here on the eye 
And right here, it's the, she believes it's the closest we can get to the right amygdala is in this spot right here. It's, it's an awkward spot to reach. And some of these neglect clients don't like to be touched that much. So sometimes I have to actually let them help me put the electrode on because they don't they don't like that. But um, so the FPO2, it's a very, very low frequency, like maybe between one and four hertz we're rewarding. And so we're wanting to bring the high beta down and reward this very low frequency. And the time frame for the for the protocol is quite short. In fact, I have one client, very sensitive system, migraine headaches, lots of autoimmune problems. We do one minute of FPO2. And if we call it the one minute wonder, because it does wonders for her. When we do three minutes, she'll get a headache. Even two minutes is kind of on the edge, but one minute is the sweet spot. So we do one minute of this one minute wonder, FPO2, and then we do the rest of the time psychotherapy. And she is making such progress. She has every kind of developmental trauma, neglect, um, sexual abuse, um, abandonment, physical abuse, all of it. She And she has such a history of autoimmune problems and she's getting better. So that's one, um, one protocol I use a lot. I also work a lot with um, T4. Ruth, before you move on, I mean, for, for those of us who do work with trauma, we we definitely understand the the, the right versus the, the left, and of course, right and left. I mean, would you mind going into, into detail on that, please? I think uh, that might be important for our audience as well. Thank you um, for, for bringing that to my attention, Mari, because I actually, one very super intelligent client of mine kind of was complaining he, he was saying how come we we say the amygdala we've got two amygdalas we've got a right amygdala and a left amygdala so what is that and so uh, i'll speak to that because the right amygdala is it's uh, the right hemisphere is where we have more of the emotion more of the fight flight response but the left amygdala is also very important because it it's the area that mediates peer relationship and affiliation with the pack, with the um, community. So somebody who has, um, say, peer bullying trauma, we might want to work the left side amygdala. Now, interestingly, the right and left amygdala, unlike all the other parts of the brain that have a right and left organ that are the same thing, but on different sides, the right and left amygdalas are not connected. So it's that's interesting. It's an interesting disjuncture. And often with the more sort of specifically kind of attachment shock, as Frank Corrigan calls it, or the more overt trauma that we can point to an incident, we, we're working on the right um, limbic area. That's where the fight flight response is. With neglect, we see a lot of hypoarousal, meaning a lot of numbness, a lot of slow reaction, boredom, um, hopelessness, helplessness. The half freeze. Slow firing. Exactly. Exactly. And so for those people, I, I'll work a lot with the um, T3 minus T4 to 
get more balance into kind of we want to we want to help them calm down, but not too much. I don't tend to work the front of the brain too much. Some people do. That isn't tend doesn't tend to be where I work. I work more in the back because that's where the developmental um, issues tend to be located, and also. Um, you know, the very early, like, attachment and sense of self are way in the back. Another um, protocol that Seaburn talks about a lot, which is, it's hard to get to, but um, it's also very effective. It's another one that we do in very small, short increments, low frequencies, and that's what she calls Indian Ridge, which is right in the back, in the brainstem area. We've got a... Um, We've got kind of a bump in the skull, and then right at the base of that bump, we we put the electrode. It's hard to keep it there, and it's once again it's one of these low frequency, short intervals of um of training, and she calls that the Indian Ridge. That's another good one. So the protocols I tend to use most with um, incident trauma are T three minus T four T three. Um, or P3 minus P4, T3 uh, minus T4, the um, FPO2 and the Indian Ridge. Now, my own experience, and I'm hesitant to talk about this because some of my wow stories um, that I've never replicated with another person are with Alpha Theta. And I love Alpha Theta. And when I first started doing my own neurofeedback way back in 2008, when I was a client and I hadn't been trained yet, my, uh, my quirky therapist who I saw, she called Alpha Theta dessert because I looked forward to it so much and I loved it. But I love to tell these stories because they're so kind of unusual and they're mm -hmm. true. And one of them is that everyone in my family had gray hair. And when um, my sisters, I have two sisters and both of them, by the time they were in their 40s, were pretty gray. And so I was starting to get gray hair and um, then I started doing neurofeedback in um, 2009, and, and I was doing a lot of alpha theta, and all my gray hair went away, and I've never colored my hair, and my hair never got gray. And so to this day, all my gray hair went away. I've never gotten gray hair again. I've never colored my hair. There was only one thing I could credit with that and that is alpha theta i've never there's a new business <laughs> no I, I hesitate to tell the story because i don't want people coming and saying get rid of my gray hair because i've never replicated it but i have another one of these stories they're so hard to believe my mother had these bunions on her feet and they were really kind of unsightly disfigured she had these big bumps both feet and it was really painful and she had surgery to have her bunions removed um, because they were they were terrible. And, you know, bunions are a bone growth. And um, she, both feet, she had these, you know, big protrusions. She had surgery and she always had to wear kind of, you know, frumpy shoes. Not that she would have worn pretty shoes anyway, but she always had to because her feet hurt. So when I was in my early 40s, I started having my mother's bunions and I would look down my feet and I'd go, ugh, I'm turning into my mother and my feet hurt. And so for about five years, I could wear nothing but clogs 
because my feet hurt. I always took off my shoes as soon as I could because my feet hurt and I hated that I couldn't wear my pretty shoes anymore. And then I started doing neurofeedback. Now, once again, bunions are bone protrusions. I was starting to have the same unsightly, painful bone protrusions my mother had. My feet looked like my mother's. I was also doing a lot of therapy and working on my mother issues. Anyway, mm. I started get a neurofeedback and you guessed it, my bunions went away. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of these things are not as absurd as they, they seem, you know, these strange miracle stories. We, I mean, we have to be careful, but um, if you look at just the homeostasis of the body um, and all of our liabilities, what we're really talking about are stress responses. Um, and all of us have stories, you know, if, for example, clients with herpes. I mean, they're not coming for help with herpes. Um, but once you you quiet the brain, all of a sudden uh, their outbreaks are less and less until they're they're non-symptomatic. We see the same thing with IBS. Um, gray hair, we all know when you're young. I mean, all of us after a certain point, most of us turn uh, to gray. But, um, you know, again, epigenetics, the timeline of that tends to be different. But we do know if you are under lower stress, your timeline of turning gray is 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 going to be um, later in life. So I think we have to take away the the miracle component and 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 look at that. But <clears throat> these are the fun stories that we we all like to tell, though. <laughs> uh, qu question: Having our good friend Seaburn on the show for for several shows, uh, I've picked up a, a, enough information to become dangerous. But uh, is there a difference between uh, neglect and trauma? Neglect is part of trauma. Number one. Number two. Is there a difference? You know, with the blank face on gender, because I believe the 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 little boys freak out more than the little girls. Number three on the trauma, is there an age range where up to five years old, if something happened to you that affects you later on in life? I know PTSD can affect you, whatever the age, but I'm just saying when you grow up, more often than not, when, when you're, 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 you're young, that affects you later on. Uh, internet ad addiction and I minds, Dr. Swingle, that's you. Ruth, you got into neurofeedback 2008 or so. That's when the iPhone came out. And the new parents in 2008, when they're staring at the phone, they're not staring at the kid. So you get the blank face. So I'm mm -hmm. sure you got a lot of freaked out little boys and I'm sure girls too. What, have you seen that? And then if you, you do see it, what is the kind of therapy that you can do, talk or neurofeedback to kind of correct that? Anytime you talk to parents about this, they kind of get defensive because they're like saying you're a bad parent. So take all that stuff into play. I'll hang up and listen for my answer. You've just asked 10 huge questions. We've got 10 whole sessions here. I'm going to go back to number one, if I can get to it, about neglect and trauma. And I want to say, and this is this is part of my soapbox, because neglect is my area. And I'm on a mission to create what we now a trauma-informed world, meaning we haven't we now have a category of trauma-informed education, healthcare, mainstream. Everybody now knows what trauma is, or they think they do, and we're sort of in the process of trauma-informing the world. I want to neglect inform the world. So I'm on the on a mission to create what I call neglect informs 
psychotherapy, and I want to create this category where we wake up and attend, pay attention to neglect. So coming back to your question, neglect is trauma. Neglect is traumatic. And it's not a small T. It's not a stepchild. It's not a lesser trauma. If anything, it is the most profound. Attachment is a survival need. The human organism, the human infant is dependent on the parents, on the caregivers longer than pretty much all other mammals. So to have a threat or a loss of that primary earliest attachment is profoundly traumatic, is a threat to survival. So neglect is trauma. One of the things, and and this is where we're going to, it's a bit dangerous to talk about this and, you know, the um, community of politically correct, et cetera. But I, I think, you know, there's a danger in shirking. Um, and Ruth, I would love your perspective on this, that there was there was a lot of focus, I would say, in the, the 80s onwards about physical abuse of children. And we really, I'd say we did a really good job in terms of educating the style of parenting as something to take away corporal punishment. But what we didn't do, and we still haven't done, and maybe it's just starting a little bit, um, is the neglect piece. Um, and many of us believe, and again, you have to be a bit careful and please don't email in terms of, you know, uproar about this. But to a certain extent, the silent treatment, meaning the neglect, is more hurtful than the corporal because of the corporal, you actually have a presence. Um, and if we talk about, you know, love and hate is not the opposite of love. Okay, because hate, you're engaged with an emotion. Neglect and absence is the opposite of love. So I think in terms of how we work with individuals, that that's incredibly important. Yeah, just piggybacking on everything that Ruth said at the very beginning of, uh, of the podcast today. Um, I want to add um, that when you look up um, in early uh, attachment and a parent is on the phone, that's an absent parent, okay? No self-promotion here, but I've written over 800 pages on this between my two books. So this, I mean, this is the this is the major culprit now um, and we need to educate people. But the other one I wanna add is Botox, okay? This huge, huge popularity of Botox, we have very young mothers literally freezing their faces. Okay. Um, and I would really like to get the word out there because in terms of, you know, the ability of children to learn to read facial expressions, okay, that's one component in terms of their own emotional maturity. Um, but the other is you're getting a different form of blank face. Um, and the other one, I mean, again, I'm being very, uh, on PC here and I'm going to swear. So you might edit this out, Pete, but you also get what we call bitch face. Okay, it's that frozen look um, that, uh, you know, for influencers, et cetera, is, is considered attractive. But for a young mother, uh, that's a horrible, horrible, um, in fact, negative face, frightening face for an infant. Ruth, I'd love your comments on this. That is so interesting because the part about Botox, I, I never heard before. I never read before. That is mm -hmm. so interesting. 
for that. I'll have to look for your pages. Um, I'll look you up and see what I can find of your writings. Trying to think about how to sort of jump in with what you said back to where I was. Because when I'm talking and what you said about the phone and the distracted parent is so profound. Because what, what I'm talking about, where the sense of self and the sense of value and self-esteem and um, agency and all of these profoundly important developmental steps begins is in infancy and in the days when I was first coming, you know, of age as a psychotherapist, um, it was in those days where people would sort of prop their baby with a bottle and leave them. And so that was sort of like the phone equivalent in those days where the child was sort of left on their own to kind of, you know, feed themselves and calm themselves and quiet themselves down. The absence of other at that early, earliest time, and this goes back to one of Pete's many questions, um, the developmental ages that are so precarious. And what I see where the neglect is most profound and has the most sort of impact and deleterious impact is in infancy. And so it's of course at a time when um, we think, oh, the child doesn't remember anything, so it doesn't matter. It really does because that's where, you know, that early default mode network is developing, sense of self is developing. And when there's nobody there to resonate to, that sense of self is slowed down, is very vacuous. And a lot of these kids, I certainly had this experience myself, you kind of grow up being uncertain about your own existence. I mean, I I certainly kind of felt like I have no right to exist, that I have to kind of earn my place on earth because I didn't feel rooted. So, And I think there's something about having that missing resonance somebody there to resonate to is what kind of grounds us and roots us and gives us something to develop from develop around when that doesn't happen and this goes back to um pete's question it's at that earliest stage that it's most profound so when is the most significant time for neglect or any kind of trauma and neglect is a trauma it is I mean, Frank Corgan is a psychiatrist in Scotland. He coined the word attachment shock because that speaks to it better. The absence of other is a shock to the nervous system. And so it is traumatic. And the earlier, the more vulnerable, the less developed that brain is, the more vulnerable it is which means as we train that brain, it's the most painstaking. It's how deep we have to work. It's how we have to keep on finding protocols that go deeper and lower so that we can access these places that weren't reached. And that's why I'm very interested and very ignorant about the ultra low frequencies that some people work with. I'm not trained in it, but I'm curious about it. I always thought like, what is that? It's not, it's, it's below what's natural for our brains. I'm curious about it because if there's something we might be kind of reaching or repairing that didn't. We've been better at getting to the cerebellum back there. So like when you're 
cradling, you know, the, the child, uh, the elbow and the cerebellum back there. And with the connect connection of the eyes, uh, you can do the rocking and you can cradle the cerebellum, but if you're on the phone, you're, you're kind of you're not doing anything. Right. So just parents keep, you know, keep, keep an eye on that. Uh, boys and girls, is there a difference on the, on the blank face? RBF. What do you think, Mari? I think it depends. Uh, I think, you know, gender, talking about gender now is very, very unpopular. And I think we're doing a disservice. Um, but, you know, sorry, sorry how, to how, men. Wait, how, wait, men have been wait. proven. No, oh, oh I, I don't want to get like we're, we're going into the gender neutral. I mean, if we would, there are different forms of gender and different ways to define it. Um, but I'm just going to go to biological base. Okay. Um, and again, apologies to um, to the males of our species, but males are significantly more fragile. Okay. Uh, if if you look at uh, miscarriages, majority of miscarriages are male fetuses. If you look at um, in terms of heart and heart development, again that that loops in. If you look at the um, uh, frequency of of autism, if you look at the frequency of ADHD. Now, part of this is our latent um, discovery of how these ailments or disorders present differently in, in females. But if you look at the, uh, the presence of emotional fragility and to a certain extent in early life physical fragility, it's the males. Um, I have no idea why. Um, if I can speculate a little bit, I think the female body needs to be a little bit stronger in different ways because of motherhood. Um, you know, if we look at pain response, same type of thing, females have significantly higher pain response than males. If you look at the man cold, you know, all of these type of things, right? So we are definitely not the more fragile sex. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of things we don't know, and I'd be absolutely remiss to to go on and um, a tangent of the absolute here, um, because the way we uh, we look um, at uh, children in birth from at uh, you know birth gender, um, we're beyond biased. Uh, and you know just what I was saying in terms of who we defined as the more fragile gender, um, absolutely incorrect. So I guess my summary of all that is it depends. Um, but in terms of um, what we think we know, uh, the male does need a little bit more attention, but that could be a hundred percent wrong, because again, very unpc. Doctor Swingle, based on my Netflix mental health education, yeah. they they did yeah. reference a study which I will put uh, right here that they yeah. sh they they showed you know uh, a baby boy being neglected yeah. versus a baby girl. The baby boy freaked out a lot lot yeah. sooner so we'll just blame it on netflix okay okay ruth, ruth, <laughs> ruth 2008 did you see anything happening like you you you've been treating people for a while did you see an uptick in certain cases uh because i referenced that because of the uh the iphone you know it's a good question pete and i i can't really put a finger on something specific about phones at that time. And what I will say is I don't work with children. I work with adults. 
So that impact on kids would show up in children and would show up in adults later. So I um I can't I can't say I noticed yeah. what I heard was that you know we had this big economic collapse and so some people who had never had any kind of trauma before suddenly were like losing everything people who had everything were suddenly like it was all falling apart i'm going to throw so another stone in the pond here Pete, maybe for a completely different show but i'm going to yeah. throw a big stone in the pond 2008 2009 was the year that porn became free on the internet and that had a huge, huge impact. So, but maybe for another show. So, so Ruth, getting back to the 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 ages. Okay, we don't know the difference between the male and female, but what is an infant like? What look a, a parent's going to be watching this right now? And I know there's no absolutes. Everybody's different, Doctor Swingle. I get it, but people want an answer to a question like, when do I really got to pay attention to my kid? I know the answer is always, always. always. Okay, great. But, <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm exaggerating. No, but I mean, there, there's a, there's an interplay and, and, and I'm sure Ruth can speak to this as well. It's all about balance. Okay. The worst thing you can do is be omnipresent with a child. And the worst thing you can do is be continually absent. I mean, what is the role of, of a parent? Uh, the role of a parent is to raise a, uh, a healthy, happy, and futurely independent person. That to me is my definition of a parent, right? Um, and in order for a child to develop resilience and independence, you have to be absent sometimes so they, they can learn and make errors on themselves. But you have to be present enough so that the child, as they mature, you're always there so they, they can do the check-in, right? Um, and I think it's a gradual, I think when a child is tiny, as present, you know, attachment is zero to three. Okay, you want to be very, very present zero to three. And then I would say from three onwards, once you've established that base attachment, great. But then from, you know, three to around seven, that's where all the emotional regulation is coming. You want to be very, very present during those years um, so that you the children can model after you after you um you know seven to nine is the fine tuning of emotional regulation and if you're not present during those years i mean adolescence is going to be a little too much fun so yeah it, it, it's a it's a it's a game it's a dance of, of of balance sort of jump onto something that mari said that i think is so important that i want to make sure and and kind of inject in here. And I want to put in my little disclaimer, and that is, I'm not a parent. So I, I'm i the first one to say, I have no right to can make give advice about parenting because I'm not one. However, I'm an avid student of the research. What I can say comes out of the attachment research, and this is so important to me, is that the gold standard of the most accurately attuned, good enough mother caregiver. The gold standard, the best you can find, they are perfectly accurately attuned, listen, 30% of the time. That's the gold standard. Those are the best of the best. And the rest of the time, 
the other 70% of the time is this dance of rupture and repair, rupture and repair, what rupture and repair. And one thing that I've so powerfully learned in my own marriage, and this is so powerful, when we know how to repair, when we know how to get back together after we've disconnected, when we know how to get regulated again after becoming dysregulated by a disconnect, we learn it is safe to make a mistake. It's safe to have a misstep. It's safe to lose the connection because we can get back together. So the experience of learning mm-hmm. and learning that to make a mistake is not fatal, is not the end of the world. To lose the connection is not equivalent to dying. Then we can relax. Then if we're I safe. Just, and that is the heart of regulation. No, I just wanted to take that a little bit uh, further. So, you know, safety is not that you're always there. It's that you can go away, but you come back, right? That you always come back. But the other thing, I want to just make a little bit of a point. Um, some of the <laughs> language that we use in our literature, I don't think translates well to the general population. So the rupture and repair, I really don't like that language. Um, I mean, that that in terms of argumentation and conflict within families and parent and child, yes, but that's not what we're referring to. So I would like to override the term rupture. Okay, um, and that is simply it's it's presence, and then you're you're going away to do something, which that to me is an absence. It isn't necessarily rupture if we if we talk in in lay terms. Um, so I, I think you know even in our early the, the, the games that we play in early childhood, I think they're they're absolutely imperative. My classic example is peekaboo. Okay, peekaboo is preparation for absence it's it's it teaches safety because what do we do okay we're first of all we're teaching facial expressions i'm going to get goofy i I don't know how much you want to edit this one here pete but essentially we're there the big smile clickbait you know all all of it so you're teaching facial expressions you're teaching how to read facial expressions but you're also teaching absence and presence so first you do it with your hands then you tend to do it with a uh, a, a baby blanket or a dish towel then you do it behind the sofa and then usually there's no face associated uh, uh behind the sofa or even with the baby blanket and then you do it behind doorways okay you're teaching that you always return you're teaching safety um and and pardon my repetition but i'm going to rotate back and um not i'm not challenging the terms in the literature i just feel for lay people uh rupture and repair that that's aggressive uh language that i think we should use about yeah moms lose it dads lose it okay but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about when the parent goes away to tend to something else um, and then comes back. We're talking about these kids and the neglect. There's a lot of difference between firstborn and the fourthborn. If you got a family of four kids, the firstborn, they're getting a whole different experience, right, than the fourth, right? Can you see the difference? Because you're seeing them later in life, Ruth, and you see them younger, uh, Dr. Swingle. Can you talk about, if you have a family of four kids, the first kid and the last kid born, is there a difference in their Oh, that's a huge one. And and Pete, you're going to hate my answer. 
It depends. Depends. Okay. Yeah. Um, it also depends on on when. I think a lot of the earlier literature was on, you know, generations where four and six kids were very common in families. Okay. But it's also where older children started to take care of the younger children. Um, nowadays, in terms of big families, first of all, the profile of the parent that chooses to have a larger family is very different. And again, we're talking about 2023. This is a choice. This is not a biological obligation anymore. Um, so all of the, I think a lot of the early literature, I would actually start to challenge now. Um, the other, yeah, in terms of, you know, many, many of the structures are, are, are different. So yeah, it, 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 it vastly, vastly depends now, but there is a lot in terms of, um, uh, the, the middle child, I would say it's, it's easier to profile the middle child, but sometimes the the first child gets tons and tons of attention, um, gets everything that the, the parents don't have the energy uh, for. But sometimes the, the first child, it's not necessarily the good attention. OK, it can be really negative or, you know, parents are learning. Um, and I would also say in 2023, you don't have auntie so-and-so, you don't have grandparents around, you don't have all of the other what I call heart caretakers not paid caretakers and that's a very very different relationship and how it affects um uh development boy that's a big answer ruth what do you think <laughs> i often see some of the most profoundly neglected kids or adults come from huge families like they're number 11 out of 10 or out of 11 so they have profound profound because by the time they came along the mother was so exhausted and had nothing left and so the child just kind of got lost in the crowd and forgotten and um are terribly neglected and one of the things that i find that they really suffer from almost to an extreme is envy and jealousy in fact, whenever I see envy and jealousy, I always start inquiring about siblings because kids in really large families, they feel like there's never enough and they're not getting enough. They're always looking around to see who's getting what and how much and they feel um, like they're, they're not getting enough or they're not getting their share. And there's a lot of fear and scarcity and this sense of emotional hunger. So I see a lot of adults with terrible neglect issues that come from large families, especially when there's poverty. A lot of these really large families, and we're not talking about four, but we're talking about maybe seven, eight, 10, 11 kids, which I sometimes see. And, um, you can only imagine what is the relationship between the parents. If the mother is having a baby every 11 months for 12, 15 years, what's going on between that couple that right after giving birth, this woman is already sort of in a position where the husband or the partner or whoever it is that's the father is once again kind of on her to 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 have sex and and there she is again pregnant again and what what's going on between them and the child growing up in that context and often i hear terrible stories about that but there's often not enough resources there 
enough resources in the family for everybody to get enough of everything when the family's really large. Now, when there are four kids, that could be a very different story. I haven't really kind of studied that formally, carefully, but um, I definitely see this pattern with the larger families. And sometimes the envy and jealousy is ferocious to the point where I've worked with couples where the um, child of neglect who has these huge families is almost accusing me of like coming on to their partner or the, um, the, the client who's a therapist himself or herself accuses me of competing with them. Um, there's this sense of not enough and competition and sort of scrapping for, you know, for resource. So that do you it... notice that there's a difference um, of generations? So would would you say that the clients that you're referring to are age 60 or above versus um, age, you know, 30? Or uh, do, do you notice a, a difference by generation? That's a good question, Mari. I, I can't answer it because I, I tend to work with that whole range, you know, 30 to 75, I see, you know, every variation on that. So I can't really, I can't really speak to that. But it's a, it's a very interesting question. Some of these gender and age and generational questions, I haven't really thought about that way, but they're really good questions. Hey, moms so and dads, that, don't, don't be defensive out there. There is no standard. There is no perfect. We all got something, okay? Direct all complaints to Pete at NeuroNoodle.com. Ruth. <laughs> Get 30 kids don't come with manuals that that that's my uh and <laughs> dr spock <laughs> just saying ruth how yeah. how can look we got to do this again ruth how do we uh find out more about you where do we send our listeners and viewers to thank you pete for asking i have a website ruthconemft.com i have a mailing list i write a blog every week you can get on the mailing list. You'll get my blog. I write about all topics of trauma and neglect, and they're all on the website. So if you go onto my website, ruthconemft.com, and you click on blogs, there's like a hundred of them to read for free. And so I write a lot about these issues. I've written three books. Um, the first one is about is nominally about sex it's called coming home to passion it's about the couples dealing with trauma and neglect and the difficulties in the relationship it's nominally about sex it's really about the relationship i've written a second book that's a clinical book about neglect um treating the developmental trauma of childhood neglect and i'm currently in the process of writing a lay people's book about neglect called Too Much of Nothing. I also have a compilation of the blogs called Out of My Mind. So those are all the books that are available on Amazon or on the site. And the blog is free. It's on the site. And you can get on my mailing list and you'll get it in your inbox every week. Yeah. I'd love to talk more about sex. One thing that Mari said that we didn't really get to follow up on was about when um, porn became legal or porn became accessible on yeah. the internet. And be another topic, Pete, for another day, which is about the whole sex addiction furor that blew up right around that time. And that I had this flood of calls. 
arousals in those days. And that would be a good topic for someday because talk about hyperarousal. I'm on it. I, I think we should do I think we should do that because that, that works in a lot with uh, my own work as well. So let's do it, folks. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. And then of course, Dr. Mari, Mari, Mari Swingle. You got it. Yay. <laughs> author of iMinds Internet Addiction. Thank you for joining us. What a great show. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. 